this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Book Network. I'm your host today, Kaveh Rafi, a PhD candidate in art history at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Nicholas Brown about his monograph, Autonomy, the Social Ontology of Art Under Capitalism, which came about in 2019 by the Duke University Press. Professor Brown teaches modernism, African literature, and critical theory in in the English department and in the Department of African American Studies with an affiliate position in art history at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His research interests include Marxism, Hegel's studies, the history of aesthetics, Lusophone literature, and music studies. His first monograph, Utopian Generations, The Political Horizon of 20th Century Literature, published by the Princeton Press, in 2005, examined the relationship between post-colonial literature and European modernism and the relationship of each to the continuing crises in global economic system. Former president of Marxist Literary Group, Professor Brown chairs the editorial board of the journal Mediations uh, and is a a founding editor of the electronic and print press MCM. Hi, Nick. And welcome to your books in art. Glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, let's dive in right in and talk about your book, Autonomy, which offer a fresh perspective on aesthetic autonomy and its political value, one of the great debate, perhaps, of the 20th century. The book illustrates the viability of modernist project in the era after postmodernism while offering one illuminating reading after another of the contemporary examples. The first time I read the book, I was blown away by how many examples were found in novels, photography, sculpture, popular music, TV, and movies. Uh, Definitely has a vigor of old-fashioned art criticism, which I am fond of. Uh, Reading each example was very enlightening for me, actually. Uh, That's to say an outstanding work, uh, and thank you for that. Uh, to begin with, uh, maybe uh, uh, you tell us about the story behind this book. How did it came about? Yeah, sure. I, I will do that. I'll say a couple other things, though, just in response to your, uh, you know, your introduction to the book. You know, I mean, one is, and this is probably going to come up in the conversation, is that the, you know, the argument or discussion about the autonomy of art. Um, I mean, it is obviously a 20th century issue, but it goes way back farther than that. Um, and in fact, you know, this was sort of at issue through mu- most of the, much of the debates throughout the 19th century, uh, you know, throughout Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, the question of, and, and I really appreciate you pointing out that the work, you know, although it has a theoretical point, I hope, you know, really functions to the examples. Because the whole point, uh, as I take it, of the concept of art as it develops in the late 18th century um, is that it produces a kind of 
instance where a certain kind of thinking is possible and that certain kind of thinking is thinking through concrete situations where abstract thinking, um, although it might be at work, can't produce the kind of convincing kind of account of the situation. And I think that's what art has in common with Hegel, his phenomenology of spirit. spirit. It's just like example. It's all it is. It's like example after example. So the book is deliberately example after example. Um, art is dealing with the problem of uh, posed for them uh, by the market, and then they have to work through it themselves. So you can't produce any sort of a priori answers of how does art deal with the market. You can only look at examples, and that's why the book is is all those examples. So, you know, in a way that answers your first question, um, I just had a sense um, that was more or less the new millennium, uh, but you know, more or less the new century. Um, there was something afoot. There was a kind of um, uh, a, um, you know, I came up doing graduate school in the 90s, um, the sort of sense of the market as the ultimate horizon of, of the work of art being something sort of, you know, either shrugged at or humped at or depressively moped at or enthused about um, was nonetheless accepted. And I got a sense that in the arts, that sort of stopped being the case, you know, not abruptly at 2000, but, you know, something around then, a sense that, that this was not a satisfactory account of what, of what art was doing. Um, and I wanted to um, turn to some instances where I thought that, thought that was really visible. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, I, I, I was thinking about the introduction. Uh, the introduction opens up with this challenging question by George Lukács, quoting work of art exist. How are they possible? Uh, so you explore the notion of art's autonomy in order to answer this question. Uh, what is the autonomy of art and why is fundamental to the existence of art as a category under the capitalism as a specific market? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, to answer that, I'm going to maybe go back a while. I don't know if, if um, how, how, how extensive my answer should be. But I'll say, you know, first of all, you know, autonomy um, has many sort of connotations. Um, and I sort of uh, struggled a bit, not with myself. I always thought this is what the book was going to be called. Many people wanted me not to call the book autonomy. So it had sort of a ring of sort of older philosophic or older, older theoretical debates. But it really is about autonomy, um, about autonomy, first of all, in just a literal sense of being self-led. So the, the idea behind, um, on my view, the only coherent account of art, although there are lots of different versions of it, um, is a self-legislating object, what makes it different than other kinds of objects. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, so just literally autonomous. Now, the question is, you know, what are the threats to that autonomy? Um, and leaping, leaping forward to our own time, um, you know, to me, uh, or to my, on my view rather, um, you know, the dominant threat, uh, to the autonomy of the work of art, uh, to the self-legislating, le legislating nature of the work of art, uh, is, is the market. Um, but, uh, Kevin, do you want to leap in with another question or should I, should I explain what I mean by what I just said? Yeah, maybe maybe we can think more. Uh, one thing that very much stands out to me, uh, there is also, in, in a great uh, sense, uh, these uh, influences of late 18th century, 19th century aesthetic, specifically about autonomy coming back from Immanuel Kant and Hegel, and very much you can see around this autonomy, the idea of uh, purposefulness without purpose, and these kind of things. It's came frequently in the book. Maybe maybe we can you know uh, save more focus uh, about these concepts and move on. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Kave, as you know well, um, you know Kant's um, conception of aesthetic judgment centers around that idea of purposiveness without purpose. Um, and as you also know well, um, the whole purpose of that formulation, the whole, whole, yeah, the whole purpose of that formulation is to separate it out from other kinds of judgment, the judgment of uh, the pleasant or the agreeable and the judgment uh, of the good. Um, the judgment of the pleasant occurs according to um, just your body or my body, um, things we like. Um, in that sense, it's not an autonomous judgment. Um, my body decides that I like sugar um, or I like sweet chocolate, and it just it just does. I don't have any choice about that. Um, 
the uh, judgment of the good, on the other hand, proceeds according to concepts. Um, you know, if someone says that's a right triangle, it is sort of either, either it is or it isn't. I measure the angles, and if it's a right triangle, it's a right triangle. Um, and I have, uh, I have, you know, again, it's also not an autonomous judgment. Um, but the uh, the a judgment of the of the beautiful in in Kant is something like um, what my son uh, he's always referring to things as being satisfying. Um, which in his, I think it's his generation, but his sort of language uh, means something that somehow, you know, you think it's somehow right. Uh, that door closes right. Uh, this, this um, you know, this shape is right. This handle fits right and so on and so forth. So it's a sort of sense of rightness. Um, but for Kant, um, you know, where that autonomy comes from, it's a special kind of judgment because it's a special kind of something special is happening in your brain. Um you know, to put it vulgarly, it's more complicated than that, again, as, as you know. But in, in Hegel, um, you know, in his um, lectures on fine art, um, he um, makes it sound as though he's, you know, just adopting uh, Kant's, uh, you know, standpoint um, wholesale, which is unusual because he usually is, is not very nice to Kant. But he, in this situation, he is. But in fact, he's not accepting it wholesale. He converts purposiveness without purpose which is something that exists in the mind, it's a certain kind of judgment, to purposiveness without external purpose, in other words, a certain kind of object. So a certain kind of object whose purpose is legislated by the thing itself. In other words, a thing where you don't know what it is or what it's trying to do until it tells you itself what it is and what it's trying to do. So its norms are sort of encoded somehow in the object itself. And again, to me, that's what makes uh, that is a convincing account of what makes the work of art different than all kinds of other culture that we that we have. Um, you know, food is complicated and pleasant. Um, you know, mugs. Uh, um, I'm just looking around, looking at random things. Um, uh, furniture design. All these things are are more or less uh, aesthetic. Um, but that's what distinguishes an aesthetics from a, from a philosophy of fine art. That's why it's called lectures on fine art, not not the aesthetics as we casually call it in English, um, because Hegel is really concerned to produce a certain kind of object. And I and again, I think it's a compelling account. I think it's, it's you know, with all its variations, um, not only the only compelling account, but also the one that undergirds just the way we deal with works of art when we deal with them as they're meant to be dealt with. Anyway, it's our, na- our naive conception. We may not have it in mind all the time. In fact, we, we don't. Um, but it underlies the kinds of things we do with art when we talk to each other and say, you know, what do you think that meant? You know, a friend of mine or my father and I actually having an argument about Tar, uh, the movie. You know, the, the question is not like, you know, was it pleasant or not? The question is like, wh- why did that happen? Um, and only the movie can tell you why. Like the, the only sort of convincing account of, you know, why, you know, if you've seen the movie, um, you know, the young women are arranged uh, like an orchestra in the, la- in the last scenes, you know, only the, only, the no- only the movie can tell you. It's not something that can be found um, uh, elsewhere. Yeah, I see. Uh, so it's, yeah, this is fascinating, uh, specifically how uh, Hegel twists this, uh, you know, logic. And also... V- as, as you develop this idea in relation to the commodity form, it's fascinating. Maybe we can come back to this. Uh, I'm really interested in you know, uh, unpacking more about this uh, meaningfulness uh, in relationship to, uh, to uh, commodity. But maybe before, before doing that, maybe I, I, I want to ask also, since you brought up this also the importance of examples. Uh, and as you're working through in each chapter, you, I, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like you're moving between the different mediums and this is, and making this thread is, is, is a very much fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about very much it, how the argument, you know, crosses these different mediums and forms. And in each chapter, this art medium or types very much prominent one becomes very much prominent and i'm i'm curious if any specific you you already mentioned a specific reason but maybe uh putting together as a chapters uh and the, the whole narration of book how why they 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 are so and why this organized this way yeah yeah that's a good question um so you know i'm gonna actually touch on on the on your um, suggested later question as a way of getting to that um, 
you know, we may come back to this, but um, you know, that conception of, of art as uh, something whose meaning can only be established by sort of protocols established by the work itself um, comes under threat um, in various ways at various times. The signal instance, uh, maybe the first sort of major one is in France, 1848, which, you know, eventually produces what we think of as, as modernism or the, or at least the, uh, you know, great flowering of, of the new art in France in the second half of the 19th century. Um, but mostly understood as, uh, or I understand it anyway, as a sudden understanding, um, not exactly of the market yet, um, but of audience and of class and then, and therefore of, of market. Um, as being a threat. In other words, um, uh, what is being written is not being written for some kind of a featureless uh, subject, but rather be writ- being written for, in, in context, the bourgeoisie, and that's a problem. So now suddenly this has to be sort of addressed. So um, on my account, for us, for us, you know, late 20th century, early 21st century people, um, that instance, that threat uh, is the market. Um, because, of course, if something is produced for the market, what it's produced for uh, is to make a profit, is to sell, um, it's for exchange. And uh, whether something is exchangeable or not is not something that the, that I or you as sellers decide, something that the, the buyer decides. Uh, and then sort of the problem of making things for the market um, you know, emerges, emerges as a problem. Again, turning back to graduate, my own graduate school experience, I just remember um, uh, it was like the nail in the coffin argument if you want to take a work of art seriously um, someone would just mention what market is meant for, right? Oh, you know, that's just for, uh, white men nostalgic for, um, for, uh, for modernism. Um, that's just, you know, but with name your demographic, it could be any demographic. And then that sort of puts an end, end to the idea of taking it seriously. And then, in a way that's right. So, you know, works of art have to like address that issue. In other words, if they want to be taken seriously, they have to somehow, um, produce the own plausibility, the, the plausibility of the market not being the de- determining instance. So that's what the book is about. But um, all of these markets, all of these audiences uh, for our work look different. The audience for the novel and the way the sort of the novel interacts with an audience or a market is different from pop music, very different than pop music. In fact, television is different and art photography relatively, um, relatively, um, um, uh, what's um, insulated from that dynamic, and uh, and Hollywood film, of course, in a very different way, um, interacts with that dynamic. So the major chapters are: there's one in the novel, there's one on pop music, there's one on television, and there's one sort of divided between art photography and Hollywood film. And again, what organizes those, um, what organizes those, is the uh, is the different relations to the market. Um, but again, since part of my point is there can't be any sort of a priori, anything a priori said about those relations, you sort of have to work through it. And in working through it, you find um, that there may not be rules, but there are sort of common commonalities. And so each of those chapters that's in a major way about one of those art forms is also about another art form um, where, the, where the particular instance has a family resemblance to something, some other, some other art form. In this case, uh, more novel, but also contemporary sculpture, um, theater, particularly Brecht. And uh, art film and the figure of, of Jürgen Leth, um, and you know, and there are many, many more sort of smaller instances, instances sprinkled, uh, sprinkled throughout. Um, yeah, does that start to answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I <laughs> think that, 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 that's, <laughs> that, that's actually beautifully worked out. Like, uh, but both, I think, very much connected to both all question connected together and beautifully linked together. Thank you. Uh, so perhaps this question is. A follow-up about uh, you put an interesting spin on you know modernist uh, idea about uh, autonomy. Usually, as we understand, like uh, for modernism, in more classical view of autonomy, it has to do with medium or forms. So, uh, yeah. and but you write here uh, the originality in quoting the originality of the present moment is that the concept of medium or material support must be expanded to include the commodity character of the work, unquote. Uh, Thus, the proposed account of autonomy doesn't stop at the forms and medium specificity, but also examines what you call a framing procedure. Uh, You already touched on these issues, I think, in your answer, but maybe you can unpack 
a bit more for uh, for the audience. Um, yeah, sure. So you know, there are two ways you can think about it, and neither one is more right than the other. You can think of it as going beyond medium specificity, or you can think of it as expanding medium specificity to include the relationship of each medium to the market. Um, you know, either you know, it describes the same thing in, in, in different in different languages. But, you know, here's where, uh, again, something you know very well, but um, is uh, is where the importance of, of Michael Fried's work comes in. Um, because, of course, or maybe not, of course, but we don't we don't tend to think of it. You tend to uh, look at a work of art and you already um, um, uh, zero out um thousands and thousands of arbitrary determinants, right? Why do we have even easel art? There's a theory, there's a theory to that, or not easel art, but even wall art. Easel art has its own history. Um, uh, um, you know, the fact that things are framed, blah, blah, blah. All these things, all these things have a history um, and all those, and history is by nature, you know, contingent and arbitrary. Um, and so, you know, whenever we look at a, a work of art, um, in some sense, you know, that was that would be the my version of modernism, but it's not not by any means only mine. Uh, is when that problem of of taking when the medium can no longer be taken for granted, the historical um, contingency of it appears as a problem, and therefore has to be made in a certain sense to disappear. Of course, it doesn't really disappear, right? It's always there, um, but has to be sort of uh, be addressed in order not to seem the the um, the de- determining instance. Um, so that's the sort of, you know, the Friedian, uh, you know, partly the, the Friedian line. Um, and my purpose in the book was to take that um, and include um, uh, the relationship to the market, which, again, is just in a certain sense, just like the historicity of uh, something like easel art. Um, you know, it's, it has a contingent history. Um, you know, it doesn't, in a certain sense, matter um, for what the work of art is. But as soon as that, you know, becomes a problem, as soon as the as soon as our understanding of the work of art involves an understanding of, oh, this is written from market, uh, and that makes a difference, um, then that difference has to be defeated or overcome in order for the meaning to sort of uh, uh, have, a, have plausible, to be plausible, to stick, right? Or to have a chance of sticking. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, for, for the sake of more examples, because this book as you mentioned, works based on the examples. Maybe let let's look at the chapter one, uh, where where you consider the anti-racist politic of John Coetzee, the feminist politic of Cindy Sherman, the politic of Jeff Wall, and the cultural industry critic of Alejandro Inarritu, uh as compelling right examples of art, uh, and and their works in a certain ways attain a level of plausibility to this material support, including commodity uh, characteristics. Uh, would you tell us like how you, maybe it's a little big question, we can tackle each examples, but uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, if you can tell us more about different examples and how you can see this uh move from one medium to another uh, works. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to, I have to think myself back to 2018 when I wrote that chapter um, <laughs> and 2019 or when I revised it and try to remember the logic, but I do remember it more or less. Um, so um, yeah. So again, we're dealing with three different media that have quite different relationships to the market, right? In other words, so one of them is Hollywood film um, where there's a certain kind of almost brutally empirical insulation because um, you know, works of art are so big that there's no time for immediate feedback. It's not like a television show where they can just, you know, adjust to market expectations right away. So they're all, you know, these, so many of these movies are, are sort of big gambles or were. Um, then you have the novel, which actually has, you know, a quite different relationship where um, there's not anywhere near the kind of, um, you know, investment involved and, and, um, and uh, you know, in Kotsia's case, not even clear that he was sort of interested in in uh, in any making any kind of major splash with this with his first book, um, Dusklands, um, and then um, uh, art photography. Um, and Jeff Wall has a super interesting article, which I won't try to reproduce here, about the relationship of art photography uh, to the market, um, and how, um, in a certain way, it is insulated from the market by being, you know. Design, meant for a museum, meant for a very specialized sort of audience, um, but at the same time only registers as mattering once it begins to have once it begins to have uh, a market. 
So those are the four sort of instances that it tries to tie together. Really, the 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 book is, or so the the chapter is about the the film, and the um and the uh, um and the um uh and the the um art photography. Um, but what ties them together is a kind of uh, all three examples is a kind of uh, lateralness, um, a kind of. Uh, um, turning sideways of the of the entire apparatus, the ordinary apparatus of the um, of the uh, of the of the medium is sort of turned sideways in its address to the to the reader or the the beholder. So, for example, in uh, in Kotsea, you know, ordinarily, you know, or at least um, one could say the sort of you know um, null instance of, of the novel, you have a story that's, you know, being told to you, um, in, uh, in the, in, not in, um, Dusklands in the, um, I can't remember the exact name of the, of the novella, but the something's, you know, narrative of Je- Jacobus Cotea, um, Jacobus, maybe Cotea, um, you never get the story. You get three versions of the story, um, none of which, you know, hang together. Um, but what you get then is the sort of struggle among these three different authors to sort of make their meaning stick. And so rather than the sort of, you know, um, uh, story being sort of addressed to you, you see these three stories that are, you know, in a certain sense addressed to some, some, um, some narrator that you can't, uh, sorry, to some, uh, um, audience that you can't even see. It's a fictional audience. Um, you know, obviously you're the real empirical audience. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm just gonna uh, take a break and give you a chance to ask any questions about that, Kawe, because I've been sure. <laughs> spinning no, no that problem. out for a while, but I can, I can go on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, this this question was very much specific, and and, and there are so many examples. Like uh, I'm I'm still you know struggling to remember all of them. Uh, you, I think you you mentioned that the dusk land, right? Uh, the Kutsias, uh, but. But regarding maybe 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 I can stay uh, for one more question on Jeff Walls because you you brought an interesting aspect of art photography, this aspect that being counted as art itself actually it's the opening the door for also being. Uh, subsume in this market relationship or to get the market value. So this kind of dialectics, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, maybe maybe you can tell us more about how this dialectic works, maybe specifically to the art photography. Yeah. Um, I think, so th- tell me if I'm not uh, getting your understanding of question right. So, you know, um, something, again, that Jeff Wall is super, um, you know, self-aware about. Um, and he's talking about, I think, uh, Cindy Sherman, um, when he says, you know, something different happened. There's a certain point when you could pick up, you know, you could, you could get a Cindy Sherman picture, um, you know, for 50 bucks, you'd buy it from her and it was like 50 bucks. Right. At that point, there is no market in that. Right. But the point is not that like, it's ever going to, you know, reach a sort of general market where like, they're just going to be, you know, selling like hotcakes. Um, they have a market when they're understood to have artistic value. Right. So, you know, they are protected from the sort of uh, from the um, from the general market by a restricted market of people who count as counting um, by, you know, people like you and me um, in some very minor way, museum directors, uh, curators and so on in a much more major way, you know, major art historians in a major way and so on and so forth. Um, Auction houses, uh, valuations and so on and so forth. so, you know, it looks like market value, but market value actually only registers the fact that there's a prior, um, there's a prior aesthetic um, judgment that's being made outside of the market um, that then determines the market. So this market sort of registers that something is, is counting, and it's the only way that it really, really register it in a society like ours. Um, but nonetheless, um, it's not a directly market uh, judgment. Um, whereas... Um, uh, you know, Hollywood film is, you know, the success of a Hollywood film is measured in box office. And that's just, um, that's irreversible. Um, you know, if, uh, if, um, you know, Birdman, um, had sold no tickets, um, we would not, we would not be talking about it. And, you know, but you know, the point is it's designed to be an art film, but it's designed to be an art film that sells tickets. There's a very different sort of mode of, of distribution and, and, uh, circulation than does someone like Jürgen Lest, who's never a Danish director, um, who's never, um, 
you know, been interested and never needed to because of the way the Danish film industry is set up, never needed to, um, to, um, uh, to sell a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Riverlift was interesting uh, uh, for, for me specifically. Uh, this book's introducing for me, actually, honestly. Uh, and yeah, maybe, maybe I, I don't know, do, do, do you want to talk a little more about him and uh, you know, why, why specifically his approach uh, in uh, comparison to, to the other examples that uh, given the book? Uh, yeah, well, so, um, Kavi, have you seen uh, um, uh, The Perfect Man, Perfect Human? Well, it's it's available on YouTube. Uh, I'll recommend this for your audience. Uh, just just Google uh, Jürgen Lest, The Perfect Human, um, and you'll see what he's all about. It's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic short, uh, short little film. Um, and now I forget the name of the actor, but also just uh, well, actors. Um, but the the male actor is um, they're both great, but he's spectacular. Um, uh, yeah. So the the film that I picked up as being relevant though to television um, was the Five Obstructions. Um, uh, which he did with, uh, what's his name? What's the um, other Danish director with the, um... help me out here, Kave. Uh, um... I mean, I can, I can look it up. Uh... Uh, Lars von Trier. So Lars von Trier, um, you know, who's a big admirer of Les, but basically has an opposite approach. Um, you know, he's, he, you know, uh, Lars von Trier is going for, um, the wounding detail. He's going for a kind of affect, which is very the opposite of, of, uh, of Jürgen Lest's less approach. And he wants to force less, uh, into his, to, to, to make a mistake. And, uh, and he wants him to remake, um, the five obstruction. He wants to, him to remake, um, uh, the perfect human, uh, five times, um, each time according to a set of rules set by Leth himself, by, uh, by Von Trier himself. Um, and the point is, you know, in a, in a friendly rivalry way, sort of trying to trip him up and, and force him to, to produce uh, a different kind of art. Um, and uh, Von Trier, I mean, you know, uh, I would say Von Trier fails, but that's not exactly how it works. It's more that uh, Leth, like, amazingly sort of uh, succeeds uh, in overcoming all these obstructions. But the key thing is that at a certain point, um, I can't, he says, uh, make it a cartoon. And Les is like, I, I hate cartoons. Uh, you know, why would I, why would I ever do this? This is, this is going to kill me. I, I want to quit. Um, but then he, he decides to make it into a stylized, uh, thriller. It, it like a, a four minute stylized thriller. So he tried to make the whole, th- uh, thriller, um, you know, stuck, you know, uh, absorbed in these, uh, five minutes and sort of produce all of the genre beats of the thriller, um, uh, in, in the five minutes, um, in a sort of rotoscoped, uh, rotoscoped, uh, version. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. It's stylish. It's beautiful. Um, it kind of amazingly does the thriller thing. You kind of have a thriller mood for four, for four minutes. Um, but it's not supposed to be, it's not doing the thriller, right? In other words, it's not selling tickets. It's not trying to sell tickets. It's not giving you any of the other things that you want out of the thriller. It's only four minutes long. It doesn't give you, uh, you know, any chase scenes. It doesn't give you explosions, any of the thrills and so on and so forth. Um, what it is, is very clearly another version of, of the perfect human, um, where the whole point is, um, that's an oxy- the whole point of all of them is that, that that's an oxymoron, um, that there's, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect human because there's no such thing as, as a human. It's not something that has a external definition that way. Um, and so that becomes the point of the four minute thing. So the relationship to that to television is that in television, you can't not do a genre. Um, in other words, it's as though uh, Lars von Trier, whatever you wanted to say, Lars von Trier is standing over your shoulder saying, make it a, car- make it a cartoon. Um, make it a detective show, make it a soap opera, make it a, make it um, uh, a sitcom. You know, the choices aren't many. Um, you, whatever you have to say, you have to make it one of those. And so, um, you know, I don't think there are a ton of successful examples, but there are some examples of, um, of uh, television shows that have managed to sort of, um, you know, take that, uh, that sort of genre imperative and turn it into 
uh, something else. In other words, make that go away as a determining instance. Instead, in the, much like um, uh, you know, the frame is still there or the canvas is still there, um, but the history of easel painting does not become a determining instance uh, when you're trying to decide what, uh, what a work of art means. Um, and so many times um, when you're watching, um, my wife is right now watching a, um, I don't remember the name of it, watching a, um, a, uh, a hospital drama. Um, and according to her, it's, it's something that you can watch while you're exercising because if you miss several beats, it doesn't matter because you know, you know how to fill in the beats. You know exactly what, was, what happened anyway. You know which characters are going to uh, die of a brain aneurysm and which ones are going to pull through and so on and so forth. Um, the genre determines them. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so my example is, is The Wire, which is hardly a, um, you know, that is the TV show that uh, our sort of um, uh, class fraction likes uh, and things like it. But nonetheless, I mean, I think it succeeds um, in, in, doing, in doing precisely that, in, in sort of making um, the, detec- the detective, uh, the cop show, rather, as a de- determining instance disappear. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Yeah, maybe to tie to this, uh, uh, what what you you mentioned uh, in, in in the book, you uh, brought up the example of the wire, uh, which which was intriguing, uh, specifically you know uh, regarding to what you call the excessiveness of the genre figure uh, of these detective shows. Uh, it it was very much interesting, the excessiveness of this the genre. Uh, so, I mean. How, how how would you define this excessiveness, like specifically in, in, in the- yeah? So um, you know, I think it is. I think it is true. I mean, I just we were watching. I mean, it doesn't really matter. My wife and I are watching Perry Mason, the new Perry Mason, which isn't isn't that great. Um, but uh, the figure of the of the detective, or you know, in that case, a lawyer, but the de- detective figure as, um, you know, uh, brooding monomaniacal, um, you know, absolutely, um, you know, monomaniacally sort of devoted to like, you know, a certain kind of um, investigation or certain investigation um, is built in. Um, And my understanding of that is that has totally to with the history of the genre and its necessity for forcing, for pushing aside other genres. Um, in other words, uh, not being soap opera, not being sitcom, not being any of the other television genres, requiring a kind of um, requiring a kind of pushing aside of these other genres. And it's actually funny as I was doing research for the book, I was looking at old uh, cop shows um, and just amazed at how many times the main policeman uh, or the main cop, the sergeant or detective or whatever, is served divorce papers in the first episode. Um, and what's the point of that? The point is like, yes, he's a person or she, but in the in the Danish versions, she, um, but in the American ones I was looking back to for historical research, he, um, uh, you know, served divorce. Uh, yes, they have a life. They have, you know, they're a human being. They're like a quote unquote well-rounded character. However, um, they're too obsessed. Uh, they can't have a personal life. Um, and therefore, it closes in and, and, and sort of um, uh, seals off the genre from all the, from all the other genres. Um, and, you know, that has become such a sort of aspect of the genre that you can't really have the, have, you know, I mean, um, Luther, the killing, like all of these, you know, all of the sort of contemporary examples have the sort of driven uh, excessive character. So the genius part, I thought, of The Wire um, was to turn that into a sort of Antigone figure. Um, where the obsession um, is going to cause just like, it's not going to solve cases. It's just going to cause damage. Um, it's just going to, you know, it's going to uh, discover things. And, you know, it's not the only version, um, the, the killing, the Danish show, 
um, did the same thing with its uh, character, Detective Lund, was it? Can't remember her name. Um, uh, but uh, to turn that figure into a kind of figure of destruction, whose commitment to a certain kind of truth or just to, to the truth um, is going to end up sort of blowing up everything else. And of course, in The Wire, um, that also leads to a whole other set of um, you know tragic um, conflicts, um, you know, um, conflicting commitments, um, you know, that sort of can't play out. Um, and as they do play out, yeah, as they you know do play out because they you know, are empirically in conflict and actual human beings are just going to play out by like tragedy, you know, made by, by causing disasters. So, um, you know, but, um, maybe, I, maybe I've, maybe I've answered your question, but just, but just the, um, the, uh, you know, the obsessive figure is like a very old genre figure that comes from TV as a medium. Um, and, uh, and, um, the, um, uh, the killing, the, 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 Danish one, um, maybe the American one too, but the Danish one and, uh, and, um, and the wire, you know, really take that and turn it into, into something else, sort of make the sort of, um, the sort of arbitrariness of that figure, uh, disappear. Uh, you, you have this interesting phrase expression, a condition of possibility, uh, for this mode of figuration. So was like, uh, interesting way that you put this, uh, Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, in other words, sorry, just to, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting, but just like in other words, condition of possibility and limit are the same thing, right? Just just with a different kind of with it with a kind of you know mastery of it or a kind of a supersession of it. In other words, um, you know, the canvas is a problem unless you produce a successful one, and then it's not a problem. Um, you know, the sort of genre determinants are a problem um, unless you find something to do with them and turn them into something else. In which case, they're not problems. They're you know, conditions of possibility. It's like conditions of possibility and limit are sort of the same thing, um, you know, under a different aspect. So how then do we understand this in relation to self-legislative aspect of this autonomy? Uh, how how we, we do this transition? Uh, I think there is... Yeah, right. So, so this is, I mean, there's a lot of ways to think about this. Um, but this is the general instance, or this is the general, this is the, like, art, in this sense, art is just an instance of the general problem of meaning or action uh, as such. Um, because any action we take um, is, uh, you know, in many, many ways, uh, in, the, in sort of the preponderance of ways, not ours. Uh, it takes place in a situation which we didn't invent, in a language we didn't invent, under physical conditions we didn't invent, historical conditions we didn't invent, conventions we didn't invent, um, you know, personal limitations we didn't invent, you know, I, the list literally, I mean, when I say it goes on forever, I mean that, you know, just literally, it, it could go on forever. So what does intention even mean? Like, does that have any sort of sense? So you can see how this relates to the work of art, right? In the sense that, like, the determinations that aren't the work of art um, are, again, infinite, Um so the question is, uh, you know, how does one register an intention? How does one make something not something happen under these circumstances? And what I'm what I'm trying to say is like that's actually um, an extremely common. Uh, in other words, it's actually not that big of a problem. In other words, it's what we call intention all the time. In other words, um, you know, um, you know. Um, you know, dance, for example, you know, doesn't take place in the absence of gravity. Um, it uses gravity. It turns gravity from a limit into a condition of possibility. Um, you know, easel painting takes the two dimensions of the canvas and takes it, turns it from a limit into a condition of possibility. Um, so, you know, in fact, action in general requires, um, you know, again, we, we don't think about it this way. Uh, if we did, we'd go crazy thinking about all the de determinations. Um, but what we do when we do things um, is to... Uh, turn um turn limitations uh to account um yeah does that help or is that yeah 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 I, th I think I, th I think so i think so uh, these are these are very much like a constellation of ideas and very much uh i'm always uh amused by you know the extent in which i mean uh they they can be uh taught and 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 also I, I consider uh, you mentioned this is not just about art, but about the humans and about actions, and and also um, maybe I'm thinking uh, 
I don't know, maybe not in close in relation about the rule following uh, in, in some extent. Uh, I think the same problems uh, appears there too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something? no, for sure. I mean, and drawn is actually a good way of thinking about that distinction. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations since the book came out with people who are working in genre or who are taking genre seriously. And many of them always want to revert to the question of the genre as rules. And there's no question that in a certain sense, a genre is a, is a set of rules, right? I mean, otherwise it, it ends up not being recognizable as a genre. Um, but, um, you know, the sort of the point I would want to make is that when a, a artwork, um, you know, takes up a genre in order to sort of turn it into its own conditions of possibility, um, you know, what counts as the genre, right, is what counts for that work as the genre, right? In other words, there are lots of, you know, there are lots of things um, in the detective or in the cop show genre that aren't in the wire, right? Um, it makes itself recognizable as a version of the cop show by invoking certain certain uh, aspects of, 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 the, of the genre. And that's true of any sort of attempt to sort of, you know, take up a, a genre. I mean, it's even true... Um, with Flaubert taking up realism in um, in sentimental education, um, you know there are aspects of the realist novel that aren't there. <laughs> if you took it as a list of rules, but you can tell very clearly that he's like trying to do something with the genre of the realist novel um, because he tells you he is in, in the novel, right? So um, you know it isn't is not following a set of rules. In other words, yes. There is some kind of infinitely long uh, list of, of genre conventions, um, but the ones that count are the ones that uh, that the that the artwork itself itself sort of you know tells you count make make makes them count. Yeah, that's why you you use family resemblance in this sense. They they, they may make this uh, exactly this uh, sets of. Uh, Thing that resembles there are their affinities, but of course, uh, with their own uh, distinction. I, I'm 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 curious ab- uh, about the politics of autonomy. You touch on this uh, in the book, and there are phrases. I mean, there are the passages, the pointing, for example, uh, about how the art can contribute to quote, the project of constructing a world without hunger. And without police, basically you're bringing up the two ways in which capitalism can enforce exploitation. So, but 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 you see these moments in this art. You can resist. Maybe this is temporarily. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm curious. Maybe uh, you can uh, tell us more about this. Yeah. Politics. Yeah. So this is this is definitely the the least liked part <laughs> about the book. I mean, not by me. I think it, I still think it's fine. But um, so um, yeah. So depending on um, who you are, there are different ways for that my line to be sort of uh, unpalatable. Um, but uh, you know, one is you know I insist that the the work of art doesn't have any levers. Um, in other words, like. Um, I belong to a union. A union has a lever. The lever is the strike. Um, you know, it can force people who disagree with you to do what you want to do. That's political power. Um, and, you know, voting is not as powerful as a strike, um, but it also is a way to force people uh, to do what you want them to do, to do, and so on and so forth. So there are, you know, th- you know organized, um, you know, longstanding institutions have a certain kind of power. Um, that artworks, they just don't have that, that leverage. Um, you know, it's sort of customary to go to sort of, uh, you know, good examples and say, you know, what about this? What about that? That are sort of nice, uh, comfortable liberal examples. Um, but look at something like, um, uh, the fountainhead, right? Um, yeah, on the one hand, like, you know, every libertarian member of Congress claims to have read the fountainhead and it's changed, uh, changed uh, his or her life. Um, on the other hand, those are people who already were going to be like libertarian assholes in the first place. Um, you know, I read the fountainhead at the same time as they did in high school. Um, you know, and I sort of, you know, whatever. The point is like when you're, when you're confronted with work in art, you're free. Um, you know, you're convinced by it or not. You find it compelling or you don't. Now, 
the thing is, though, that that's, you know, so when I say it's powerless, I just mean it doesn't have any levers the way a strike or a vote uh, or a protest or, uh, you know, any kind, any number of things might uh, actually have uh, levers. Um, but, you know, I also claim, and this is like a, another version that, it w- that the line is unpopular or not unpopular, but meets with resistance, which is good, um, is that I claim that uh, or entailed in all what I'm saying is that our works have something to say. Um, and that what they have to say is made compelling or not by how well they do the thing they do, how well they how how well they convince you that they have something to say, and that something um, meets with a uh, kind of very difficult to quantify um, uh, agreement um, from your sort of mode of uh, experience being a human in the same world or even a different world uh, than the than that in which the work of art takes place, and so you can be convinced by a work of art. Um, just like you can be convinced by an argument that um, that uh, that um, uh, that unions are a good idea. So, in other words, um, uh, um, you know, when I say that works of art have no power, I mean in that in that particular sense, like of of um, you know, actually sort of holding on, you know, having some kind of contact with an actual lever of of power. Um, but they can convince you, um, you know. That's that's for sure. Yeah, um, to to some extent, I'm. I, I don't know. You you might not. Be, I don't know if you are agree, but very much I'm thinking along the line of structure of feeling to to some extent. Uh, so this 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 convincibility, right? Like created this more perhaps this uh, collective. Uh, not a clear idea, but the sense uh, how to go. Uh, yeah, which is which still remains in the culture, uh, but but I, but but I think in terms of, for example, if unionization. Uh, so this this I mean, there can be a sort of culture that helping to you know build on, uh, for example, those institutions uh, that perhaps. Would at the end of the road, uh, with help for uh, you know uh, uh, for holding the power and you know exerting the power uh, through these institutions. Any, anyhow, I'm. This is a really uh, hard question. I, I I really encountered the same idea about like how like art, art matters to what extent and specifically. During the time of crisis, uh, and I think if you if we look back also to the history of art, it seems that very much the same crisis as it's appeared, for example, about avant-garde, right? Uh, I think you mentioned this in the book too, like the reaction about this problem and how they, they wanted to ab- abandon the category of art because they saw that there's a crisis. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you want uh, to. Uh... Yeah. So that's a, a super complicated, it, as you say, it's, it's a hard question because it's also, you know, has to be thought about uh, super historically. And I think that's a lot of the, um, you know, the problems or paradoxes or contradictions we get to when we start thinking about the avant-garde in terms of our contemporary situation. Because on, on my view, um, uh, the avant-garde only makes sense. You know, the, the sort of, you know, the whole impetus to make art life, uh, to make art over into life, and a, which is a kind of critique, obviously, of bourgeois institutions, um, only makes sense on the understanding that the life that you're being integrated to is something else. It's a utopian, it's a, top, a utopian mode of, of thinking, uh, whether it's explicitly linked to uh, politics or not. Um, so for example, you know, in the Brazilian instance, uh, in the sixties, you know, that sort of Brazilian avant-gardism was completely committed to like a revolutionary program in which the art that would be to which, uh, or, you know, the life with which art would be made one. In other words, the art that would no longer be art. Um, it's not going to be like one with this life. (laughs) It's going to be one with, you know, this, this post post post-revolutionary utopian life. It's going to be totally different. Um, and, you know, I'm certainly not, uh, saying that there will never be a post to capitalism. And I'm not, I'm also saying that though, if there is, um, we won't need art. Um, you know, obviously we'll still have culture, we'll have entertainment, we'll have, you know, all kinds of things. Um, but art would not necessarily be, 
um, on the um, on the agenda. So in that in that sense, I would agree with the avant-gardists. But what I disagree with it um, is when um, when the avant-garde or some version of the avant-garde is understand to be radical um, today. Um, you know, divorced from a plausible uh, revolutionary program, as though making art life uh, is is somehow um, is somehow still a radical program, where it's not. In other words, making art life is just making it into more more commodities, making it into more more capitalism. Um, you know, in fact, you know, erasing the distinction between art and life, um, you know, the the uh, the instance of it that tends to dominate is um, versions of making art uh, into a into a commodity or into um, into a spectacle, which ends up being a commodity, um, into uh, a statement, which ends up being like a political statement, um, which ends up being a purchasable um, point of identification. Um, as again, we tend to think of the liberal ones, but uh, you know, Ayn Rand does perfectly well here. Um, the market for Ayn Rand is uh, people who already uh, want to believe Ayn Rand, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, is that yeah. Begin to answer? Yeah, I, so, I, I, it's, it's a it's a super historical question. So you know, the avant garde is like genuinely a left phenomenon. Sometimes, <laughs> um, sometimes it's not. It depends on on what what the political program, uh, you know, that it that it sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, um, integrates with, and whether that integration makes any sense. Yeah, I, I, specifically in, in terms of uh, like examples of us as as you're as you're specific talking to this problem, I was thinking about the project of neo avant-garde as the you know appropriating some of this avant-garde you know uh, unfinished project of avant-garde and br- bringing into the, the, the new context historical context is and and at the end the, the failure of that project perhaps very much shows that. Um, yeah, I was I was thinking about this recent. Yeah, uh, very very complex. Uh, I, I always baffled with the. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, maybe maybe uh, you know as a final question, uh, specifically, I would like to know if there will be any book in the near future, uh, and when we can expect it to be released. <laughs> oh, I don't know. There, there. I'm working on a couple of books. I'm working on one. Um, you heard me talk a minute ago about Brazil. Um, I'm, t- I'm sort of interested in that period, in the um, in the moment when the um, when uh, sort of the Brazilian um, high modernism of the, of its moment um, becomes avant garde. So around 1964, um, when all of these, and, and particularly 1968, it's a complicated situation, um, but where uh, you know all of these um, neo concretists. Um, uh, um, you know, suddenly confronted with what's happening politically, realize that they they, they want to be doing something else. But it ends up uh, it ends up working out in all kinds of different ways for these different different artists. So I'm trying to I'm writing a book up, uh, on on that, um, and I'm slowly um, trying to do something on on Mahler. Um, I'm not sure it's going to end up being a book, um, but. Uh, but again, it may be a little bit too complicated to try to try to figure out what I'm trying to say in that book right now. Um, but Mahler is actually struggling with both sort of the, uh, you know, so sort of the, the major version of this, in other words, what does materiality have to do with art? Uh, or rather, it has everything to do with music. Um, and, um, you know, what does that mean for the art part of it? Um and he's dealing with uh, with with the with the market version. Um, as I don't know, how we haven't really talked about music, but uh um, you know, he's the first superstar conductor. Um, he's, you know, deeply, um, deeply um, involved in the contemporary, in what is then the art, mar- the, 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 the music uh, market. Um, anyway, that's very in- inchoate, but that's, that's what I'm working on. And I have no yeah. idea what I'm going to do. None at all. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy that you, you brought up the music because I, 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 I probably, that's, that's uh, my fault. I skipped chapter three because in chapter three, you you brought up the music uh, and uh, very much uh, bossa nova and 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 you, you look at the pop also uh, also the, the new version I think uh, you, you covered like a Kurt Vale uh, Ateneo uh, Veloso and the White Strip so this is in a wide range of the music I'm 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 not quite familiar I, I know uh, bossa nova uh, but I haven't 
listen to Byte Strip, uh, honestly. Uh, but uh, anyhow, uh, I don't know. Do you want to have yeah, yeah, I can... about the chapter and the music? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, Kurt Weill, uh, Katana Velozu, and the White Stripes are have generically almost nothing in common, except that they are all at that moment writing, you know, popular forms of one, one sort or another. But they're all confronting the problem uh, of the market. Um, but in, in what, what's interesting, or what was interesting to me in writing in that chapter, is that there are three different historical moments when the when the relationship to the market is quite different. Um, but they end up producing similar um, uh, strategies for overcoming the that sort of relationship to the market. Um, but the strategies look and sound very different. They they end up being sort of the same, almost like you might say, you know, theoretically or something. Um, and that is, they all end up using, they, they all end up um, becoming like citational. Um, so, you know, Kurt Weill obviously writing with, with Brecht at, at a moment when there, you know, when, um, art music on Weill's account, um, is, is making all kinds of progress. Um, but, uh, progress internal to a very small restricted field and not actually making any kind of headway outside of that. Um, Kurt Weill wants to write for a larger audience. Writing for a larger audience means writing uh, for the market. Uh, in that, in the in particular musical theater, Brecht is obviously interested in producing a certain kind of politics, um, but again, not just for a small group, but for you know, for quote, you know, in a certain sense, everyone for a, a, a large market. So they both risk the market, but they take it you know as uh, as you know as a deliberate risk to be taken. Catano Veloso in uh, in the sort of the post sixty uh, four um, Brazil um, is uh, composing in the midst. Who, by the way, it's a little known fact. Catano Veloso um, started off writing his, his very first commission was for a Brecht play, which is like a crazy fact if you know what uh, Catano sounds like. Um, but not really. He, he well anyway. I'll let that go. People people might agree with that or disagree with it. Um, but seeing a tremendous expansion of uh, of of the of the cultural market uh, at a time um, when uh, the memory of a popular art form um, is is recent, right? In other words, you know, Bossa Nova, you know, it was quote unquote popular, um, but it was also an erudite form, it was a bourgeois form, um, uh, um, but it managed to sort of, you know turn uh, a set of protocols which came from Chopin and came from uh, art uh, poetry um, and turn them into you know the, a worldwide sort of phenomenon that nonetheless didn't give up on didn't give up on its art, uh, artistic um, uh, ambitions um, and the whole problematic for Caetano uh, and this is very explicit in his you know writings at the time he's always written you know prose along with music um, is that he lived through its disappearance. So the sort of, you know, the, the problem of the art market for Caetano is like not exactly new, but it's visible as like unbelievably clear. He sees it unbelievably clearly. Um, you know, I don't know if he'd read Adornian, Adorno at the time, um, but comes up with very Adornian formulations of se- seemingly sui generis, uh, just from sort of observing, observing the relationship of, of art to the emergent market. Um uh, and then, you know, for the White Stripes, I mean, it's a more or less uh, 21st century phenomenon. Um, there's no memory of a, of a, pre, of a pre-market pop, a pre-market rock. Um, you know, there's a, there's a fantasy of it in punk, um, but that was a fantasy. Uh, it was uh, as much a, a commodity as any other, as any other rock. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so in these three moments, there's a, sort of, you know, three very different relationships to the market. But nonetheless, the sort of um, technique they all use uh, is, uh, is citationality. In other words, what they want to say, um, they end up saying by citing other forms and other, uh, quoting other forms and other, um, uh, and other um, genres, but turning them into uh, and making them speak to each other in a way that sort of is determinate. Um, and so you can, they're not just sort of pastiches where, oh, there's a nice, uh, there's a nice version of, um, you know, hasn't Caetano done a nice version of a Portuguese fado? Um, but rather, um, what is he trying to, you, ha- you, you ask the question, why, why this genre here? 
why is this album this collection of genres and not some other collection of genres? And once you start, you know, asking those why questions, you're right back to the question of, of the work of art. In other words, why is it there? You don't know why it's there. There's no rule for it. You have to look at the work of art itself. It will tell you, um, or it won't. But your job is to ask the, that question why and try to answer the question why 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 this rather than something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, then how 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 then this in in terms of the the connection about the citation, which is which is quite interesting. Uh, I, I was thinking about tropicalia. How how then you 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 see tropicalia would uh, in relation to this uh, this tree that we discussed? How how do you see the tropicalia as the genre? Uh, can be defined specifically tropicalia very much also the historical moment that it came is very much closer to the coup right it's also the, the yeah maybe 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 we can touch on the tropicalia because i'm really interested in the tropicalia especially in relation to the art brazilian art and yeah so two things one is tropicalia as you know uh was first uh, an artwork uh, by elio chisica and um it was actually i mean not a very compelling version of it, but there was a version of it in Chicago not too long ago um, when there was a Ochisika um, exhibition, traveling exhibition. Um, it's thoroughly citational. In other words, you know, the whole, the whole way that that work of art works is like producing different sort of class structures and different class positions and different sort of cliches and so on and so forth. Excuse me. Uh, class positions and cliches. Um, and putting them in, juxtaposing with each other and turning them into a set of contradictions. Um, and, you know, just to put it, um, you know, maybe too quickly, that's what uh, Tropicalia does too. And Tropicalia, the musical um, movement, which doesn't really last very long, um, is, uh, but also citational. In other words, um, turning um, avant-garde uh, recording techniques um, but turning them onto, you know, a ridiculously insipid melody, um, that has, uh, you know, that ends, for example, with a with a um, with the church cadence, with a five one, or four one rather church cadence. So, you know, um, the church cadence you're meant to hear it as a church cadence. The sort of, you know, elements of circus music you're supposed to hear as elements of circus music. Um, the kind of, you know, avant garde uh, recording techniques you're supposed to hear as those avant garde recording techniques, and all these things are sort of understood as being um, in tension with each other. And that's then what has to be what has to be read. Um, you know, in other words. It's probably more than I can do right now, but uh, Roberto Schwartz does it very well in his, you know, in his a long essay on the, on that period. Um, you know how these juxtapositions then are meant to be read, not exactly as allegories, but as sort of instances um, of contradictions that are that are national and historical in scope. Yeah, uh, I, I would say uh, thank you, Nick, for uh, coming on to the podcast. It. It, it was a great pleasure to talking to you. Uh, and, you know, Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a pleasure.